And let's pray again. God, we do come to you as our Father through Jesus the Son. Thank you. I pray that you would use your word to cause our rejoicing in him to be greater. God, we pray that you would use your word to admonish the idle and encourage the faint-hearted to help the weak. God, we pray you would now, by your word, have mercy on those who doubt and save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, God, would you show mercy with fear and cause them to hate even the garment stained by the flesh. God, I pray that you would make known to us, convince us afresh that you love us and that you have chosen us. I pray you would do that by causing your word to come forth not in word only, but in power and with full conviction and in the Holy Spirit. We ask you would do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 8 this morning. I've begun preaching through Revelations chapters 2 and 3 uh, whenever I get the opportunity to preach when Dan is, is out or uh, needs a break. Uh, what is this part of the Bible all about, Revelation 2 and 3? Well, the Apostle John, toward the end of his life, saw a vision of the risen Christ in glory. And Christ told him to write about what he saw and what he heard and then deliver that message to seven churches in Asia. In chapter 1 of Revelation describes this vision that John saw of Christ and Christ's command uh, for John to write to the churches. And then in chapters 2 and 3, there are seven different addresses of Christ, one for each of these seven churches. And this morning we'll study the second church that Christ addressed, the church in Smyrna. And Christ intends to address us this morning by these words as well. Uh, the letter to the church in Smyrna ends with a well-known appeal in Scripture. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I pray God will give us ears to hear what the Spirit says this morning through these words of Christ to the church of Smyrna in the first century, and the Spirit speaks through them to the churches, including ours today. Let's begin listening to these words of Christ now. Look at verse 8 with me. Christ begins with a word about himself. Verse 8, look at this word about Christ. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, if you're wondering why Christ addresses uh, this letter to the church in Smyrna as to the angel of the church in Smyrna, I will refer to you, uh, refer you back to the last sermon we did in this series where we talked about that more in depth. But, but basically, I think Christ is associating the church, the local church in Smyrna on earth with heaven, the angels of heaven and their citizenship there, and that they are uh, participants in the kingdom of Christ that is coming. And in these seven letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus introduces himself in seven different ways. In each case, he introduces himself by drawing attention to part of the vision that the apostle John saw of the risen Christ back in chapter 1. And if you look back there in chapter 1, you'll see that this is part of that vision John saw. Chapter 1, 17, when I, the Apostle John, saw him, this vision of Christ, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever." more. So in each of these seven letters, in Revelation 2 and 3, the Lord Jesus highlights an aspect of who he is that is perfectly 
fitting for the message that he wants to send to that church. And for the church in Smyrna, Jesus wants to address them by calling himself the first and the last who died and came to life. Because that is perfect for what he wants to tell them. Now, what does it mean for Christ to call himself the first and the last? Christ could not have claimed a more exalted place for himself than he did when he introduced himself with this little phrase. To be the first and the last means the same thing as does the title, the beginning and the end, or the alpha and the omega, which is the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's like someone saying, I am the A and the Z. And Christ heaps up all of these titles for himself at the end of Revelation in just one verse. Revelation 22, the final chapter of the book, in verse 12, Jesus says, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. In verse 13, I, Jesus, am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, this language is especially significant because of how it draws upon previous Scripture, and especially the prophecy of Isaiah. In chapters 40 through 48 of that prophecy, the Lord says many times, I am the first and I am the last. And he explains what that entails. Things like, he made everything. He controls everything. He is God and there is no other. None above him. None beside him. None before him. None beyond him. Only him. The first and the last. From everlasting to everlasting and everything in between. Isaiah 44, 6, which Matt read this morning. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let Him proclaim it. Let Him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Again, Isaiah 48, verse 12, the Lord asserts, He made and controls the universe as the first and the last. 48, 12, listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I call. I am He. I am the first and the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. And when I call to them, they stand forth together. Again, in Isaiah 41, verse 2, he asserts his sovereignty over all people, over all nations, over all events that come to pass. 41, 2, who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Okay, here's the question. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I am the Lord, the first and with the last. I am he. Isaiah 40 through 48 is full of this kind of stuff. The Lord insists upon these truths over and over and over. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no other. There is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Before me no God was formed, nor after me shall there be any. I am the Lord, besides me there is no Savior. I am God, there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Are you getting the sense? What, what is this claim, I am the first and the last? When the Lord calls himself this, he says, there is not another God. 
There is one, and one only, and I am he. I've always been God. There never was another. I'm the first. I always will be God. There never will be another. I'm the last. There is no one and nothing that preceded me. There is no one and nothing that will outlast me. He's the one who was and is and is to come. Everything that will happen is something that he knows because everything that will happen is something he will bring about and cause to happen. He declares the end from the beginning, not just in the sense of knowing it so he can describe it and speak about it, but in the sense of commanding it and controlling all things future, all people that come to be, all events that come to pass. And so when he says, I will save you and deliver you, who can turn back his hand? So fear not. How amazing is this. Given this background in Isaiah of the phrase, the first and the last, for Jesus to say of himself, I am the first and the last. He's not just claiming my father is the first and the last, though Jesus would affirm that as true, certainly, as the book of Revelation does. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. The man from Nazareth, the son of Mary, who died in Jerusalem and came alive again, he claims to personally share in the unique identity of the one true God who insists, I am God and there is no other. Of course, the Father also shares in the unique identity of the one single true God. In Revelation chapter 1, clearly in context, is, is God the Father speaking as one who is distinct from the Son, who says about himself in Revelation 1, 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. How do we put those things together? The greatness of God is unsearchable. How wonderful, how inexpressibly wonderful is it that when the Son claims, I alone am God, it is actually not a threat to the Father's claim, I alone am God, the first and the last. No, Father and Son each share in full, each participate in full in the unique identity of the one single, indivisible, true and living God who says, I, I and no other, am the first and the last, and there is none beside me. If you really understand, if you really begin to understand what this phrase means, there is enough theology in these five tiny words to make you live free from fear if you belong to him and make you want to be faithful to him until death. After Jesus reminds the church in Smyrna that he's the first and the last, he reminds them next that he is the one, look at it, who died and came to life. And that is simply astonishing to consider, isn't it? Can you fathom this? I am the first and the last who died the one and only God who lives forever was dead. That's what he says. It's amazing. And this is the good news of our salvation. That the ever-living Son of God took to his person a complete human nature so he could become just like us and so actually be able to die a human death as a man. A death that really could then be counted as in our place. A substitutionary death wherein he took upon himself all of the punishment we deserve from God for our many sins against him. So that all who trust in him could be forgiven and given eternal life. And his death is good news and accomplishes salvation like this because that other phrase in verse 8, 
because he came to life. And it is his coming to life after being dead as a man that proves to us he really is the first and the last. God everlasting, like he claims. Jesus reminds the church in Smyrna about his life after death because his message to them is very much about their deaths and the life or death that will come to all after death. So so now that Christ has announced his deity and his death and his resurrection, this struggling church in Smyrna is ready to hear what he has to say to them. Look at verse 9 with me now where the word of Christ is followed by a word of comfort. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That's exactly how you should have responded. Woo, oh, that is striking. The church in Smyrna is experiencing great hardship. It's described here as tribulation and poverty. And Jesus tells them, I know. Are you experiencing tribulation or poverty? Does it comfort you to remember that Jesus knows that? He does know. And that will be a comfort to you to call to mind if you know Him and you trust Him. Now, it's likely that these Christians in Smyrna were impoverished in part, at least, because of their faith. So they insisted that they would not worship idols, that they would not worship the Roman emperor as a god, that they would worship Jesus alone because he is the first and the last. And that idolatry was so much a part of the Roman culture of the day that to refuse to engage in this idolatry would mean that they were shut out of various trades and services and economic opportunities. And so their following Christ impoverished them. What sweet comfort it is to hear someone say, I know the hardships you're going through. If that person who says that is the first and the last who died. As the first and the last, Jesus has all power at his disposal. So the Almighty knows the hardships of his people in Smyrna and his people here. And as the one who died, Jesus is able to have perfect sympathy for his people too. Because he too has experienced poverty and tribulation as a man. Jesus is both, how how can you hold these two things in your mind at the same time? Jesus is both the highest sovereign of the universe and the one who is known the greatest suffering imaginable as a man. This is the one who knows about our hardships. He knows and he cares and he plans to do something about it. He won't fail to do it. It should be tremendously encouraging to you to remember that Jesus knows your troubles, because, as we love to sing, Jesus is full of pity joined with power. After Jesus tells the Smyrnans that he knows their tribulation and poverty, I'm not sure Smyrnans is is an actual word, but I'm going to use it as both a noun and an adjective in this sermon, so... Uh, When he tells them he knows their tribulation and poverty, he then adds, you probably caught on to this, a surprising and wonderful side comment. But you are rich. This is one of the most glorious parenthetical statements of all time. I know your tribulation and poverty. I know it's hard. But I know in the grand scheme of things, you're actually pretty well off, really well off. It takes the eyes of faith to see it. It's completely counterintuitive from a worldly perspective, but it is absolutely true. The Alpha and the Omega says so. You poor, suffering Christians, you are rich. 
I mean, just listen. Just listen to what Jesus promises to Christians in these seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3. Now, disclaimer before we start, I don't expect you to understand all of these things I'm about to read. I'll try to explain what each means uh, when we actually come to them in each sermon over each letter. But you don't have to understand what these promises mean to understand that if you have them, you are rich in Christ. To all Christians, so to those who keep repenting of sin and trusting in Christ in this life, Jesus grants to them to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. They will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus will give them some of the hidden manna, a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To them, Jesus will give authority over the nations, and they will rule the nations with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as Jesus himself has received authority from his Father. And Jesus will give them the morning star, and they will be clothed in white garments, and Jesus will never blot their names out of the book of life. And Jesus will confess their names before his Father and before his angels. And Jesus will make them a pillar in the temple of his God. Never shall they go out of it. And he will write on them the name of his God and the name of the city of his God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from his God out of heaven. And Jesus will write his own new name on them. And Jesus will grant them to sit with him on his throne as he also conquered and sat down with his father on his throne. All of these promises just describe the riches of eternal life in various ways of triumphing over sin and death and hell and suffering in the world. These are the riches of belonging to Christ and knowing Him. And if these promises really are true, and they are true, then the poorest Christian in Uganda is richer than the wealthiest unbeliever in America. If you're looking at the world through God's eyes, the truly rich ones are not those who have several thousands or millions of dollars in a savings account at the bank. There's nothing wrong with that. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. But when you see the riches of salvation in Jesus' name, it makes all of that look like chump change, doesn't it? I mean, this, quick side note, this makes the promises of the prosperity gospel look so pitiful. In addition to being false, it's also lame compared to the promises of the real gospel. So if someone has a nicer car than you and a nicer house than you, who cares in comparison to these eternal riches? Uh, If you own Amazon and are slowly taking over America's economy, (laughs) that's still not all that impressive compared with what these Christians in Smyrna had as theirs. We prayed for persecuted Christians earlier. Right now, there, there are suffering, poor, malnourished Christians who are destined to sit with Jesus on his throne. And 100% guaranteed to be perfectly safe from experiencing the second death. Eternity in hell. And so it is with all of these Christians in first century Smyrna. And so it is with all of you. All of you, dear Christians in this room. Back to our text, the hardships that the Christians in Smyrna were experiencing included persecution for their faith in Christ. And we know that in part because of, well, the broader context of the book of Revelation. 
but this also is apparent because of the second half of verse 9. Look at that again. It mentions the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of, of Satan. So on top of their poverty and other hardships, these Smyrnan Christians are being slandered. Uh, the Bible translation you're reading may say blasphemy instead of slander. That word generally refers to speech that is uh, denigrating or defaming. And when that defaming, denigrating speech is directed at God or about God, the word's translated blasphemy. Uh, when that word refers to speech against people, that word can be translated as slander or reviling or evil speaking. And I think the context here favors the latter. Jesus is telling the church in Smyrna, he knows about the hardship they are experiencing, which includes evil speaking directed against them or, or made about them. Slander. And the slanderers are identified in verse 9 as those who say they are Jews and are not. What is that? Nominal Jews? Uh, people who are just pretending to be Jewish? Or people who are just confused about their actual biological bloodline? Like if I insisted I was Chinese or, or something like that? No, not like that. That's not what is happening. I do think these people were actual physical descendants of Abraham. They were Jews by blood. But Christ's assessment of them is very similar to what he said to the Jewish scribes and Pharisees. Children of Abraham by blood. Do you remember this in John 8? They answered Jesus, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me? A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God? This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And he explains that a few verses later. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. So similarly, here in Revelation 2, the slanderers of the church in Smyrna say they are a part of Abraham's offspring and and so, therefore, the trust is just um, ipso facto that they are blessed of God. But actually, Jesus says they're more appropriately identified as a synagogue of Satan. Now, this reminds us of Paul's words, too. Several of them in Romans or Galatians. For example, Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Jesus' characterization of these slanderers, as those who say they are Jews but are not, should be also a great comfort to the Christians in Smyrna. It is a reminder to them from the God of Israel and from the King of the Jews that they, they are the ones who are right with him, and theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, in the next verse of this letter, we get an even fuller picture of the hardships facing these uh, church members. Following the word of comfort in verse 9, Jesus gives a word of exhortation in verse 10. Look at that now. Verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. There's a lot there. Consider just that first word of exhortation for now. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. What a command that is. And to hear that would perhaps make them think, about to suffer? I'm already experiencing tribulation and poverty and slander, and you know that. You just said that you knew that. What on top of all of this am I about to suffer? And Jesus tells them, doesn't he? The devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. The devil, as in the arch enemy of God and his people, who roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour. That devil is about to throw some of you into prison. 
But don't fear what you're about to suffer. Now, the activity of the devil in this verse should make you think back to the mention of Satan in the last verse. The slander of the Jews, whom Christ said was a synagogue of Satan. So probably uh, the slander from the Jews in Smyrna involved them trying to incite the Roman authorities to imprison and, and maybe even execute some of these Christians in Smyrna. And we certainly see that scenario happening in other places in the New Testament. And we see something like that happen in the life of Jesus, don't we? When they do that, and any who persecutes the church of God is in league with Satan. Now, uh, maybe you're thinking, well, it's a lot easier not to fear suffering when there's a clear expiration date on it. Uh, maybe I could not fear what I'm about to suffer if I knew it would come to an end in 10 days. And that's right, part of what would keep me going through the suffering in faithfulness, part of what would help me not to fear it, knowing God has decreed a definite end to it that's soon. And so that's good for the first century church in Smyrna, but how can I not fear my suffering when I don't have a word from God that gives me a clear expiration date for my suffering like they have? Well, actually you do have a word from God that puts an expiration date on all of your suffering. This is the book of Revelation that we're in. The book of Revelation says that all of the Christian suffering is going to come to an end. There's an expiration date on it. When Christ comes back, he creates a new heavens and a new earth where there's no more suffering or sorrow or enemies or persecution or pain or sickness or sin or death or hell or crying. Now, most commentators I read believe that Jesus' warning of a 10-day time of testing is likely a figurative or symbolic number here. Given the genre of the book of Revelation, it represents a fixed amount of time that is relatively short. I think that is the main point. And actually, likely, this is meant to be an allusion to Daniel's testing and tribulation that he had for 10 days in Daniel chapter 1, when he was taken to Babylon and he said he would not defile himself with the king's food or wine when he was tested for 10 days and he ate only vegetables. Like David was faithful and everything turned out okay with him, God exalted him, so too these Christians are called to be faithful through testing and trust God will exalt them. The main point here. And this timetable is that the suffering of the church in Smyrna won't last forever. Okay? It, it would be short. Now, there's a sense in which that's true of all of our suffering too. I can't give you an exact number of days, but I do know that the suffering God allows you to go through in accordance with His good and sovereign plan is something that you should view as being relatively short. 2 Corinthians 4.17 Paul describes the Christian's suffering in this life as light, momentary affliction, but a moment that is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Likewise, 1 Peter 1.6, In this you rejoice, you who have been born again to a living hope through Jesus. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while... If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And really, this, your suffering in this life will be short, ultimately because this life of yours will be short. James 4.14, an excellent verse for you to memorize and meditate on often. What is your life? A mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So as you consider any tribulation or testing or suffering that you may experience or that you may experience in the future, you should consider the expiration date that God has placed on it and remember that relatively speaking, it really won't last that long if you are in Christ. That's not to minimize it. That's not to say it's not true suffering. 
That's just to say you should have hope and be faithful to Jesus and not fear. Consider also God's good purpose in suffering. It is certainly not beyond his control, is it? Did the devil imprisoning uh, the Smyrnan Christians somehow walk outside of the purposes of the first and the last? You know, there's a little hint of God's good purposes in verse 10 for the Christians in Smyrna. You look at verse 10. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. It reminds me of 1 Peter 1, which I just read earlier, 1 Peter 1, 6. For a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So all of these truths enable Christians to actually obey this astounding exhortation. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Look at the second big exhortation that Christ gives to this church. For ten days you will have tribulation. Exhortation two. Be faithful unto death. So like the church in Smyrna, that should be our main focus in times of tribulation and poverty and persecution and testing. Don't focus first and foremost on the suffering in order to fear it. Focus first and foremost on Christ in order to be faithful to Him. Now an important light bulb needs to go off in your head as you consider this second exhortation. Jesus tells them, be faithful until death, right after telling them they'll be imprisoned for 10 days. Does that suggest that at the end of 10 days in prison, instead of being released back into the world, they will rather be put to death at that time? Maybe. And I think Jesus intended not to make that clear. There is certainly no promise he gives that these Christians will be safely released from prison. Does death or release await them at the end of this 10-day period? Well, ultimately, it doesn't matter, does it? Jesus doesn't think they need to know. They just need to be faithful until death, whether that's in 10 days or 10 months or 10 years or whenever it is. Their focus should be on these two clear commands that Jesus revealed to them, not on the future Jesus did not reveal to them. Now, for some of you, not knowing whether or not you would die at the end of 10 days would make it harder on you not to fear and be faithful than if Jesus just came out and tell you at the end of 10 days, you'll be put to death. Um. I mean, maybe I could really work hard on not fearing if I knew for sure I would die in 10 days. Like, if I'm about to suffer, as long as Jesus gives me sufficient heads up and gives me all the details about what to expect and not to expect, I'll be okay. I can trust Him if I know perfectly everything that's going to happen to me. That sounds backwards, doesn't it? But this maybe I'll die, maybe I won't situation, that's terrifying, right? Well, apparently it doesn't have to be. Because Jesus commands them, do not fear. So even if you do not know the full extent of what you are about to suffer, and you do not know the full extent of what you may suffer in the future, you still don't need to fear it. Why? Because Jesus is the first and the last who died and came to life. There's a really profound connection between the truth that Jesus is the first and the last and the command, do not fear. Remember I said Jesus chose that part of the vision for this letter because it fits perfectly with the message he has for them. In Isaiah 40 through 48, I'm not going to go back and read these scriptures for time, but I have a list of them showing that not only does Jesus repeatedly say, I am the first and the last, the Lord says, I am the first and the last, 
Also, repeatedly, there's the exhortation, do not fear, running alongside that claim about who he is in Isaiah 40 through 48. And in fact, the letter to the church in Smyrna is the only one, maybe surprisingly, the only one of all seven of the letters where the command, do not fear, is given. And so how perfect for Christ to remind them that he is the first and the last. And actually, also perhaps surprisingly, there is only one other place in the entire book of Revelation where the command, fear not, is given by God. And maybe you could guess where that is. It's back in chapter 1 when John sees the risen Christ and he says, fear not, I am the first and the last. This command and this truth about Jesus go together hand in glove. Again, call to mind, what does it mean that Jesus is the first and the last? Do you feel the weight of that? Are you struck by how powerful a picture and message that really is? Do not fear what you're about to suffer. I am the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end, and what you are about to suffer does not go beyond the end. Jesus is the Lord. He was God for forever before you were given life. He will be God for forever after this life is over, and so you can trust Him now in this short little life you're living before eternity. Anything that could happen to you even the hard things, even death, is part of His declaring the end from the beginning for the good of His people and for His glory. And so if this Jesus, who is the only and blessed sovereign, if He is your God, you need not fear. Do you? Do you fear future suffering? you need to remember that Jesus is the first and the last who died and came alive. This pair of exhortations Jesus gives in verse 10 are so beautiful together. Do not fear suffering in this life. Be faithful until the end of this life. So it's as if we mash them together. It's as if Jesus is saying we should fear faithlessness to Christ more than we fear suffering in this life. We should fear faithlessness to Christ more than we fear death itself. Now, I wonder, what do you put more thought and effort and prayer into? Faithfulness to Jesus or avoiding suffering in this life? Now, there's nothing wrong with putting thought and effort and prayer into avoiding suffering. That's normal, that's natural. You're strange if you don't do that. There's nothing wrong with praying to that end, and God is even honored when we pray to Him about all of our hurts and cares and troubles. That's faith. But there is a priority we should give, even above that, to being faithful to Jesus. And that should be reflected in the way that we pray and in the way that we live. Now, earlier in this sermon... Uh, I described the church in Smyrna as struggling. But actually, this is one of the only churches, only two of seven, in Revelation 2 and 3, uh, Jesus does not rebuke in any way. This is one of them. Jesus has no words of correction for this church, only an exhortation to keep going. So from the world's perspective, things are really not going well for these Christians given their poverty and so on. But from Christ's perspective, things are going pretty well in this church because they're being faithful to Him. So there's no word of correction here. Things are going well for them. Do you see that by faith? And is that how you judge how well things are going in your life? Now the last part of verse 10 is worthy of our attention as well. There Jesus offers a great word of hope. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Notice the clear uh, juxtaposition of faithfulness until death, 
and receiving the crown of life. And of course, this talk should remind us of how Jesus identified himself at the beginning of the letter, the first and the last who died and came to life. You can entrust yourself to Jesus until death because Jesus has himself suffered death. And he did not stay dead. And so if you trust him, neither will you. Jesus is the one who died and came to life. And so he has authority to raise you from the dead and give you the crown of life. What is the crown of life? Well, James 1.12 speaks of it in a context that's very similar to this promise to the church in Smyrna. James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Receiving the crown of life represents, first and foremost, life. The crown of life, which is, the crown which is life. Um, life after death. Life that death doesn't put an end to. In fact, this life is like a crown that you don't even really start wearing until after you die in the first place. Life that is eternal. And the, the symbolism of a crown represents honor and reward and perhaps we could say royalty even. Remember those riches in Christ I read earlier uh, that Christ promises Christians in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. Some of those indicate that Christians, all Christians, participate in Christ's kingly rule in his kingdom. At the end of the book of Revelation it says uh, that the saints will reign with him. But perhaps the main symbolism of the crown, and, and I do suppose this crown language is probably symbolic and not a promise of literal headwear, but I'm fine if I'm wrong about that. I think the main thing the crown of life represents is triumph. Crowns represent triumph. And Jesus promises to his people triumph over death and the world and triumph over Satan and hell and all enemies and slanderers. The triumph of life after death with Christ. If this crown of life is yours, you are rich. And no riches on earth compare. The letter to the church in Smyrna ends like all the others with a great word of promise. Verse 11, look at it with me. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So Jesus, you'll remember, made no promise to keep the church in Smyrna from death. He just tells them you need to be faithful until death. But he does make a promise to keep them from the second death. And this promise is for the one who conquers. What does that refer to? Maybe you see some of the same symbolism as uh, receiving the crown of life. The one who conquers is the one who heeds the exhortations of this letter and keeps following Jesus. Or to put it more simply, we could say that the one who conquers is the Christian. The one who conquers is all Christians, those who continue to live in a way that shows they are Christians, that they actually trust Christ, that they actually belong to Him and not the world. Be faithful to Jesus till death and you will not be hurt by the second death. He'll give you the crown of life which signals your triumph over death and the second death. Now, you may be wondering, the second death, the second death, the second... What is the second death? Well, the end of the book of Revelation tells us exactly what is meant by this phrase. Revelation chapter 20, I'm going to begin reading in verse 10.
I don't usually give you time to turn to my cross-references, so this is a real, well, I was going to say it's a real treat, but uh, <laughs> what we have to read about is um, it's heavy. What is the second death? Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them, the nations, so right, the same devil who threw some Christians in Smyrna into prison and, and likely killed them. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, the Lord, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, the very one that Satan himself is thrown into to be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 21, verse 8, always mentions it. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So the second death is hell, being thrown into the lake of fire, eternal torment, away from the glory of the goodness of God and under the full measure of the wrath of God instead. And all who end up there experience just retribution for their sins against eternal God, against the Lord who is the first and the last. All men who have joined Satan in not bowing their knee to Jesus in this life will join him in hell in the next and will suffer the second death with him and like him. After hearing that description from Revelation 20 and 21 of what is called the second death, how sweet does this promise from verse 11 sound to you? The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Hallelujah. Are you a Christian? Keep trusting Jesus and believe this promise with all of your heart that you will not be hurt by the second death. I don't know that we can be grateful enough that Jesus has saved us from eternal hell. I deserve, I deserve to suffer with the devil in a lake of fire. And I will not be hurt in the slightest by it in Christ. So great is our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. The church of Smyrna did not need to fear suffering at the hands of Satan for 10 days because Jesus promised they would not suffer with Satan for forever at the hands of God when he's thrown into the lake of fire. And they need not fear Satan. You need not fear Satan or anyone else who can merely destroy the body because God is the only one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And he has promised, he has promised, God is not a liar, and he has promised 
that Christians will not be hurt by the second death. So the Christian's sufferings in this life are temporary. They will end at death. The unbeliever's sufferings in the next life are not temporary. They will only be beginning with the second death. So the death that ends this life is not the death that you need to fear. If you're an unbeliever, it is the death after death, the second death that you need to fear. And if you're a Christian, you need to fear neither death nor the second death because Jesus died and came alive and will give you the crown of life. What Jesus did on the cross is so great. It is so, so great that it even has the power to save people from the second death. It's as if Jesus on the cross had the lake of fire thrown on him and he paid for an eternity of torment and judgment due us for our sins and he paid it all. All of it. We know all of it because he came alive after dying on the cross. So friends, you, no one in here, there's not a single person in here who has to go to hell for their sins. You do not have to suffer with Satan like you deserve and like he deserves. In a lake of fire and eternal torment and judgment, God is gracious. The God who is judge and the just tormentor of the wicked is also gracious. And it is his good pleasure to give you a share in Christ's kingdom as a gift of his grace. One in full by the work of Christ on the cross. What Jesus did really can count for you. It really can. You can have the crown of life. I love the song that we just sang in that line, the vilest offender, the vilest one of you who truly believes that moment from Jesus, that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Just turn away from your sins against God. Decide you don't want them anymore. And turn to Christ and entrust yourself to Him and receive and rely upon him alone for salvation from sin and death and hell. And for all who do, without exception, for all who do, Christ's riches are yours. Because Jesus is the first and the last. No matter what happens to you, you need not fear what you will suffer. Be faithful until death. And then don't fear even death when it comes. Because Jesus died and rose again. Revelation chapter 1, he has freed you from his sins by his blood. If you are his, you will not be hurt by the second death. Those who wear the crown of life will never experience that. So praise Jesus. Glory to God. He died and came to life. So we who believe in him could live and never die. Let's pray. God, how can we tell you thank you for this? We, we feel so um, acutely that we cannot adequately thank you for this. But we must thank you. Thank you, God, for saving us. Thank you for loving us while we were still sinners and transferring us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. God, I do pray for those in here who have lived up till this day in league with Satan, even if they didn't know it, in resisting Christ. God, I pray that you would grant them repentance. I pray you would grant them faith and grant them rejoicing in Jesus the Son. Thank you for this great salvation. Thank you for the riches that you freely give us. It would be more than enough for us. You would be 
overwhelmingly gracious to us to just spare us from hell, but to also give us these riches in Christ and with Christ. You are so great, God. We praise your name. We want to live for you and please you. Help us to be faithful to you and to your son until death by the power of the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.